Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 117. There was a great exodus of some people, the movement of the people into the interior of South Africa, a moment that was going to reverberate all the way to the present. The great trek, as it's known, had begun by mid-1835 and, to be honest, was a medium-sized trek already. It had been a steady flow across the Orange River for decades, small in places, led by trek boers, traders and hunters steadily rolling their wagons inland. They were following the trailblazers, the Cora, the Bastards, the Urlam, the Griqua. Some of the traders didn't come back, and not because they died out there on the distant felt. No, they liked what they saw along the Orange River, across the Klein and Main Karoo, over the Drakensberg Mountains, all the way to Mariko, pushing onwards through the Kalahari into what is now southern Angola across the Sotpansbach. This episode, we'll hear about the early travellers, the outliers, the adventurers, the dreamers. Humans are naturally motivated to see what's over the next hill or river, to quench a curiosity thirst, to look for greener grass. Far to the northeast, Zulu King Dingan pondered what was going on, receiving reports on the progress of the Sixth Frontier War, otherwise known as Makoma's War, or Hintz's War, depending on your point of view. He was far more worried about what was going on to his north. The Swazi kingdom was a thorn in his side, while to the west, Mzilikatsi of the Ndebele continued to lurk, a real danger to his outlying cattle posts on the rivers that arose from the Drakensberg Mountains. And the traders at Port Natal were nagging him. He valued their trade, but was unhappy that they had given refuge to refugees from his rule. There were so few at this stage that he let the matter ride. Christian missionaries had arrived there in 1835. I've got Alan Gardner's diary. He was a retired captain of the Royal Navy and become a missionary and wheeled his wagons straight into Dingaan's territory in 1835. His military background meant he was of a higher caliber than the usual simpering trader, refusing to embellish his natural demeanor with overstated promises, and the people of Port Natal realized he was a significant character. His book, Narrative of a Journey to the Zulu Country, remains a seminal work. He had a capacity for observation that comes from spending most of your life sailing the world. But first, we need to end this Sixth Frontier War, a guerrilla war, where the British had been outfoxed across the Kai ravines and Amatola fastnesses by the Amatosa. The colonial office was counting the cost, and it was expensive to keep thousands of troops on the move and keep paying the Khoikhoi soldiers. 455 farms had been burned to the ground and the losses to the colonial treasury was already 300,000 pounds. More than 100 settlers and soldiers had died. Hundreds of Tosa warriors and civilians had been killed. Thousands of head of cattle eaten by both sides as they relied on food on the hoof in these times of chaos. Hintz's son Sarelli was not Tosa regent. The unpleasant truth for Colonel Harry Smith to accept was that the British army and its auxiliaries were in a bad way. While the Tosa continued to move about the territory, the British could not. Colonel Henry Somerset was swanning around in Grahamstown, well-fed and clothed, but many frontier posts were running out of food and uniforms had turned into rags. Provisioning was inadequate, worsened by disorganization. On the 3rd of August, 1835, Smith sent a note to Benjamin de Urban, warning that his soldiers could not turn out because one has no clothes, another no shoes. Horses were sick, forage was short. 
The Boers had been released from service in June to save them from bankruptcy. They were not being paid for military service or returned to tend their crops. This reduced Smith's effectiveness in the field. He had fewer cavalry. But Koi heard about all of that and were outraged, demanding permission to return home as well. They also had crops to till and fiercely resented the apparent discrimination against them. Just to round off this list of the unhappy, the British settler provisionals were disgruntled too. The Matkosa began to put out feelers to discuss peace terms. The serenity of their life in the Amatolas and the surroundings had been shattered. Women and children were beginning to starve, but they did not see themselves as defeated. Matkoma and Charlie had told missionaries that they believed Robin Island was ready for them. Wesley and missionary William Boyce dreamed up a possible formula for the British to save face. That Kronukwebe chiefs, Pato and Kama, were fighting on the British side, but they were both married to Matkoma's sisters. The Wesleyans would ask the sisters to send messages to Matkoma, thanking him for protecting the missionaries during the war, and then saying the missionaries were willing to intercede on their behalf. Intermediaries, if you like. Boyce told the urban that by doing so, it would mean the British government would not be directly linked to this outreach. Saving face. If the chiefs remain obstinate, said Boyce, then the colonial government cannot be charged with inhumanity, as your excellency would have made every effort to save them from impending ruin. Gravely, he also said. Otherwise, even if the swords spare them this year, they must die of famine the next. Cold-blooded missionary indeed. Durban agreed, and the messages were sent. So that's why Captain William Cox, Lennox Stretch, and other British officers appeared near Enrico's grave when Matkoma popped up with his 6,000 warriors and proceeded to parade his new cavalry, as you heard about at the end of episode 116. He had mastered the situation and was a shrewd negotiator. Matkoma was joined by Tiali, and both let the British know that they were quite willing to keep fighting. Durban's message was loaded and handed over. The chiefs were solely responsible for the Sixth Frontier War and should pay. Matkoma was forceful in his answer. That is not peace, he warned. There were three great things in the world, he said. Hinsa, Ngrika, and their cattle. We see Ngrika and Hinsa are no more with our eyes and our cattle are gone. The British, who had shot Hinsa, were now trying to negotiate peace with Matkoma. Cox warned that the governor would call out the Boers once more to back up the British army, but Macoma obviously wasn't born yesterday. Don't talk to us of the Boers, he muttered. The Boers are your enemies. We have been provided powder by some of them, and they have told us to continue the war. Which we know is true. The Amatkoza and the Boers had a far longer association than the British. They had known each other for nearly 200 years before the British showed up. Five hours later, the debate ended. Matkoma told Cox that the Amatkoza would not accept being shoved out of the Amatola Mountains, but he left the issue of the Kaiskama area open. When Cox reported back to Harry Smith and Benjamin de Urban, they were incredulous. They were also outraged that Matkoma and Charlie had fobbed them off, and even more angry that Matkoma had been perusing his warriors dressed in a dead British officer's uniform while mounted on a white horse. Smith was particularly insulted, both agreed that the British display had been weak in the face of these 6,000 warriors surrounding their puny negotiating party. Matkoma's military parade had touched a colonial nerve all right. The military man thought that the visit had been too amicable, which will not do with a black. He must have the word crammed down his throat, he railed. 
It was an explosive contempt that burst from Smith all the seething frustrations of a man of the empire who had failed to beat the Cosa in battle and had been outthought in diplomacy. His natural response was to seek blood as he laid about himself, confused, his destination eluded him, and in fury Smith sent three hundred men and a six-pounder cannon to Fort Cox to intimidate the Cosa. Lennox Stretch, the English settler, was bemused, saying it was a foolish display. And yet, the process to peace continued to accelerate as both sides traded bad faith. The Urban nominated Smith to supervise the next round of talks, which was like putting an arsonist in charge of the fireworks. The arsonist, duly set off from King Williamstown, the new capital of the district of Adelaide, for a short ride into the Amatolas up the valley of the Kaiskammer River to Fort Cox. He was in a bad mood. When he arrived at the fort, he sent a messenger to Matkoma, telling him to come in two hours, or he would sweep him and all of his host off the face of the earth. Smith, Cox, Captain Henry Warden, and Charles Lennox Stretch waited in vain for two hours. After some more hours of waiting, Matkoma sent a message saying he'd see them the next day, Sunday, 6th of September, 1835. Matkoma and his host remained on the face of the earth. Stretch was growing alarmed at Smith's increasingly crazed approach to negotiations. The colonel wanted Matkoma and Charlie to publicly shout, Mercy, 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 when they arrived. Neither he nor Captain Cox thought Smith had the slightest inkling of how to handle that causer, nor how to handle Matkoma. That causer knew that Harry Smith was implicated in Hintz's death. The chiefs did not trust the British colonel, who lied openly. Finally, Smith calmed down. Matkoma and Charlie made their appearance. Smith then tried to walk arm in arm with both, but Matkoma refused. Later, a truce was agreed. Guns were fired. Smith yelled, You are great chief, Matkoma. To which the great chief replied, I don't know. Ask my people. Eleven days later, the governor arrived for the formal signing ceremony at Fort Wilshire near Grahamstown. This time, all the warring chiefs in the frontier were there. 17th September, 1835, end of the Sixth Frontier War. Matkoma, Charlie, Mahala of the Nklambi, Nkleno of the Mbalu, Potomani of the Ndangi. And for the first time in more than 50 years of sustained contact between colonials and the Tlaza, these people of the Eastern Cape were under the direct rule of the Cape Colony. This period of South African history is dominated by confusion. Shortly after Durban signed the document, he was told by the Chief Justice back in Cape Town that only the British Crown could authorise naturalisation of non-citizens. Furthermore, the Tlaza would be aliens in their own country and therefore could not legally own the land within the colony. Talk about lunacy. All Durban needed was a fluffy yellow wig and a big red bulbous nose to complete the picture of a clown in a circus. Back in London, they assured him that both his proclamation of the province of Queen Adelaide and the arbitrary addition of more than 70,000 new Tlaza subjects had no legal basis. Smith by now had concluded a census and found that the Nguika people, the Rarabi line, followers of Matkoma Chali, and the other sons of Nguika numbered 56,500. The census also counted 9,000 Amantlambi, 7,500 Amakunukwebe, and 18,500 Mfengu. The urban then parceled out the land west of the Kai River to these folks, the area which is close to modern-day East London. He also gave the whole of the Amatolas to the Tlaza, gave it back, in other words. Charlie wanted to return to his beloved mountains, 
McCormer actually received more than he had before, so the chiefs were satisfied. It was time for peace, now that the land had been segmented and clarified. War is a tiring business. Nguyko's old rivals, the Nklambi line, were given large swathes of territory running along the coast, alongside the Kunukwebe. This created tension. Some of the people living west of the Kai were British subjects, others were not. For example, the Kaleka, the Ntembu, the Bondu, were living alongside the Rarabe and Kunukwebe, but would retain their own laws and customs. If any Kloza tried to cross the Kaiskama into settler country, furthermore, they would be shot. They also did not have the full benefits of British law. Unlike the Khoikhoi, the province of Queen Adelaide would remain under martial law, so no Kloza living there could seek justice, because the only justice running the show there was a man called Lieutenant Colonel Harry Smith. Confusion on confusion. This nine-month Sixth Frontier War had caused relatively heavy casualties. Two thousand warriors had died by now, but it had generated big profits for the settlers living in the towns as their farming brethren suffered. The schism between farm and town was growing. The Tkosa lost most of their cattle, and some blamed the Tkaleka, who had never given back the herds stolen during the invasions. It was an interesting moment, I'm sure you'll agree. Neither the British nor the Amatkosa thought they'd been beaten. They kind of fought themselves to a standstill. Ding! Round six over. Clearly, for anyone standing back from all of this, round seven was kind of inevitable. One of the men who warned of that was humanitarian Dr. John Philip, who saw Smith's and Urban's failure to recognize failure was going to have a dangerous effect on Southern Africa as a whole. The other people of the region who observed the British weakness were the Basutu, the Zulu, the Ndebele, the Botswana, the Kora, the Griqua. During the whole of their arduous and protracted struggle, the eyes of all the nations and tribes from the Kai to Delagoa Bay and from the Orange River to the 22nd degree of south latitude have been upon us, restless to know what the result would be, wrote Dr. Philip. Well, the result was a draw. A bitter aftertaste for both, and the ideological gap between settlers on one side and the missionaries and the English establishment was now a gulf. The local settler had no track with humanitarianism. They preached a gospel of tough justice when they met to talk about how to deal with their black neighbours. The missionaries were talking equality. The trick boers and English settlers were talking separateness. Dr. Philip wrote to the French missionaries who were living with King Mushweshwe of the Basutu. Everyone was monitoring Transorangia, that lawless frontier region of roving gangs, that no-man's-land from the Kalahari Desert to the Drakensberg, covered with former escaped slaves, mixed-race Griqua, white army deserters, unhappy trick boers, all armed with muskets and riding horses, destabilizing the region further. And speaking of boers, they, like other peoples of the South, sullenly noted British expansionism, and like the other peoples, they saw themselves as victims of this empire. Back in England, there was a swell of humanitarian sentiment in favour of black Southern Africans, and this sentiment grew virtually weakly. The settlers in Africa had hoped they'd be given vast tracts of land seized from the Tkosa, but after months of bloodletting, the Tkosa were actually back on their land. The British Parliament had gone further. A select committee on Aboriginal tribes had begun its investigation into the future of the First Peoples of Canada, the Aborigines in Australia, the Maoris in New Zealand, and black Southern Africans. It would only deliver its final report in 1837. In the meantime, its members caused much debate. 
The chair of the committee was anti-slavery champion Thomas Fowle Buxton and included William Gladstone, a future Liberal Prime Minister, along with George Grey, who was to govern the Cape and New Zealand in a few years. The Secretary for War in the Colonies was Evangelical Christian Lord Glenelg, who was ill at ease with the pronouncements by Durban that black South Africans were beyond saving. This is where our old friend Andre Stockenstrom makes his return. Glenelg had heard Stockenstrom's evidence before the Select Committee, and on the 26th of December, 1835, he fired off a dispatch to Governor de Urban blaming the Sixth Frontier War on the Cape's unjust provocations, which he said had driven the Amaklosa to take up arms. And Stockenstrom was going to make a comeback, but more about that in future episodes. Glenelg was alarmed by the cost of the war, and even more alarmed by de Urban's annexation of the province of Queen Adelaide. He ordered its immediate retrocession and ordered that the ceded territory across the Kaikama remain outside the Cape's boundary, although it could continue to be administered by the colony. By doing so, he did a classic liberal thing. He split the difference and made no one happy. This now meant that the Amatkoza chiefs living between the Great Fish River and Kai had to abandon all claims to the land. But Glenelg's strange rule meant the land could be leased back to them depending on their good behavior. They also had to leave the land earmarked for them fengu. This bombshell announcement would only become known in March 1836, as you'll hear in future episodes. Before then, we have a great deal to discuss. Two parties of trekkers had foreshadowed the major movement of the Trekboer people that was to follow. One group was led by Louis Trichard. He was one of the toughest frontier Boers of all time. Trichard was not fettered by the values of these folks who preferred the towns, he was way too independent and took off across the Kaiskama River early in 1834. His family, along with 30 other Boer communities, had settled along what was called the White Kai River, ruled over by Hinsa. In a true irony, Hinsa was their master, and Trichard was quite happy to trade firearms, gunpowder, horses with the Clauser Paramount. The British then put a price on his head for this, and he fled the region with a small party of nine other men, armed to the teeth. After Hintz's death, Trichard and the White Kai River Boers crossed the Orange River, and in 1836 they were joined by ten more heavily armed Boers, led by Lang Hans Janser van Rensburg. They brought their wives and their children, their cows, their Khoisan slaves, and Khoisan servants with them. These two small trek parties wandered across the inner southern African felt, all the way to the Sertbansberg Mountains in the far north. They moved only as fast as their sheep could, around five miles a day. Van Rensburg's small group had a chilling end. He turned towards Delagoa Bay but disappeared without a trace in June 1836, wiped out by Soshangani's Gaza warriors and their allies. Where, we don't know, but another example of South Africa's dark past, still unknown. Louis Trichard wanted to head to Delagoa Bay too, but decided to remain behind in the Sotpansberg. But by November 1836, his party also crossed the northern parts of the Drakensberg and eventually reached Delagoa Bay. It was 1838, and Trichard, as well as his wife and a number of other Trekboers, died of malaria there. So, let's go back three years and catch up with the other Trekkers. Another Boer of significance was Andries Hendrik Potkira, who led the first really large group of Trek Boers north in December 1835. The end of the Sixth Frontier War and the British antics had convinced him it was time to skedaddle 
and he was joined by his extended family, neighbours and friends in 50 wagons. This fairly large convoy headed out of the Craddock district in the Eastern Cape, a useful jump-off point into the vast interior. There were 40 men and boys who could bear arms. As they moved, they were joined by Charles Soliers, or as he became known later, Sarl Soliers, from Colesburg, with 25 men and close to 100 Khoisan slaves. Shortly thereafter, another really important small group under Kaspar Kruger joined up. Significant, because amongst this party was a young Paul Kruger, who would eventually lead the Boers into war against the British 70 years later. When we return next episode, we'll hear more about these travellers and their incredible saga. These trekkers were both accepted and rejected by black Southern African people they came across. It's a story that is head-shakingly amazing, but also completely and utterly misreported by both the propaganda of the apartheid era and the smug revisionism of post-colonial historians. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. You can head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, tot ziens.